Trump says NATO has to get its act together, otherwise forget American support. Turkey, what's happened to the generals and who's in charge of the nuclear bombs? France, is it Europe's easiest terrorist target? And the latest Navy frigate, will it ever float? Plus, why the general wants recruits to walk the walk. Now, Republican hope for the White House, Donald Trump has said that if he's elected, he may abandon a guarantee of protection to fellow NATO countries. Speaking to the New York Times newspaper, he said the US would only come to the aid of allies if they've, and I quote, fulfilled their obligations to America, unquote. Well, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee and also Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Uh, Hello to you both. Malcolm, if I can come to you first... Is this just another Trumpism that we can ignore, or is he being serious here? Well, it's it's consistent with what he said in the past. So, to the it it is a Trumpism, but but it's part of a body of thinking that uh, he clearly believes in, he espouses, um, and so it is uh, reflective of uh, his philosophy, his emerging philosophy on foreign policy, which is uh, under the umbrella uh, phrase of America first. Uh, And basically, he sees the world as laid out in this fairly extensive discussion of foreign policy with the New York Times uh, in terms of very much in terms of America's self-interest. If it it suits the United States, um, something will happen. And if it doesn't, it won't. And he he defines self-interest fairly narrowly in economic terms. So he says at the moment, look, the United States does all these things in the world, but still has an $800 billion trade deficit. He says that's a bad deal, one that he's determined to renegotiate. Christopher Lee, if I can bring you in here, uh, there is a little bit of history that we can see reflected here. Uh, Truman said more or less the same thing back in the 40s, didn't he? Actually, there's a whole lot of history in this. If you look back to what um, <clears throat> Wilson, President Wilson, um, was, was saying uh, during the First World War, uh, and, and, and America's moved towards isolationism. Uh, there are hints of it there, but this is quite different with, with him saying America first. That's his great policy. Truman was basically saying, this is when 1948, when NATO was being formed, it was came into operation the following year. Uh, Truman said, look, um, this is a European problem. We've just fought a war in Europe. It's the, um, Europe ought to get its act together. It may need 97 divisions to do it, then show us 97 divisions. If you do that, we will join. Not only we will join, but we will be in the front line and always alongside you, shoulder to shoulder. Um, To some extent, he's saying the same thing as Truman said in 47, 48. Malcolm Brown, is that what America's trying to get away from, these European problems, bearing in mind uh, President Putin in Russia, of course, and what recently happened in Crimea? Well, certainly uh, Donald Trump sees the world very differently from uh, a large chunk of the mainstream foreign policy establishment, including within his own party, uh, many of whom, the sort of national security wing of his party, have openly come out against his policies and spoken about how damaging they think they would be. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, not a, a member of the uh, Republican foreign policy apparatus, but nonetheless a, a widely respected foreign policy commentator and journalist, has just written in an article about uh, Donald Trump's international worldview that uh, if he were to be elected president, it would bring an end to the post-war international order and liberate dictators, first and foremost, his ally Vladimir Putin. And uh, he has spoken, Mr. Trump, admiringly of these strong leaders, uh, putting very little pressure, for instance, in this New York Times interaction on uh, Erdogan in Turkey, um, 
trying, proposing no restraints uh, verbally in that interview um, with the New York Times on what Erdogan should do and speaking admiringly of the way that he put down the coup attempt. Uh, so definitely a, a massive shift in thinking in, in traditional Republican terms and mainstream American foreign policy thinking for decades. But what about the man on the street, the, the Joe Bloggs who, who's voting for Trump? Do they really understand American foreign policy? I mean, Americans often come in for a lot of criticism, not really even knowing their geography. Well, among the core of his uh, supporters, you have to imagine that uh, they either don't care or they approve of, of what he's saying. Um, this is not a new thought that he's put out there. It's comparatively recent. But uh, nonetheless, uh, this isn't the first time he said something like this. Uh, and I think for those who are hurting economically, uh, you know, you're... Uh, less educated white working class voter who is said to be the core, a core Trump constituency, uh, I think there is some resonance for this message that uh, if the US is going to be spending billions of dollars defending foreign nations, uh, that they should get something back in return. That's a resonant message for somebody who doesn't have a job and who's seen their prospective jobs uh, shipped overseas, which is uh, another core campaign message uh, Mr Donald Trump has been putting out there. Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Thanks for joining us. Christopher, um, Malcolm Brown, they're touching on, of course, what's happening in Turkey at the moment. We know the president has declared a state of emergency for three months following that uh, Friday night failed army coup. What have we got to? Where are we now in Turkey? What, what now for the military? OK, well, you've got 25, 26 generals and admirals. Um, they're under arrest, house arrest, or suspicion, or suspended. 6,000 <laughs> members of the armed forces... In the same sort of position. So you've had a quite a big chunk knocked out of not the whole army and the and the air force, um, but but at the higher command levels. Um, the Turks have the biggest standing uh, army in NATO, other than America. And this becomes particularly important that if you were doing what I was doing a couple of days ago in Brussels, saying to characters, "Okay, who do you call?" Just supposing you want to say what's happening with the third uh, uh, armoured uh, corps, which you're, you, you've got on high readiness and alert and, and assigned to NATO. Who's running it now? Who are the deputy commanders? What about the 10 NATO exercises that are supposed to take place between now and February of next year? Four of them, the Turks, are supposed to be in command. Are you still in command? What are you going to do? Where will these exercise areas take place? This is the sort of practical side of it. In the meantime... Uh, what we've got is is the extended um, uh, extended idea of a, of a national emergency, which means that everybody is being monitored. Everybody is wondering what the hell do we do, uh, and people are assuming there's going to be not just the clampdown because that's a sort of vague term, but directly a, a move in the direction in which the military is going. For example, F-16s are hitting Kurdish targets. Uh, still, the air force is wants to make sure that Erdogan knows that the Air Force wasn't behind this. A lot of people in Ankara will tell you that there's an uh, Air Force element beside this. And also look for the gendarmerie, where I think about to see a crackdown on the gendarmerie. These are people who are on the streets who look after national security, um, but also the gendarmes who swing their canes and sort of say, right, turn left to the next set of lights, you'll find what you're looking for. But... There is a sense that these people, the gendarmerie, not the other lot, are also behind it.
Aside from the domestic strata, if we can call it that, what about the response from the international community, Turkey's allies? We know that the German foreign minister has been urging the Turkish government to maintain both the rule of law and a sense of proportionality in its response to the coup attempt. What's the language that we're, uh, we're getting there? What should we read into that? Well, in terms, of, in terms of what the Europeans are saying, I mean, the Western Europeans, because the Turks see it as, as European or Western European, um, you could remember, for example, there are something like 300, just more than 300 Turkish senior officers in, in NATO positions. They are in daily contact with people like the, the, the Germans and the French uh, and, and the British. So that is particularly important. The important thing to remember also is that in, in Cherlik, which is the main airbase, there are 90 nuclear weapons. These are owned by the United States. In time of war, 40 of them will be transferred to the Turkish Air Force. Uh, Ash Carter, the other night, uh, was talking to the Turks and saying we are going to either remove uh, certain components from Incholik, but they're putting in a new protection force because what they don't want is just even one of those things uh, to be commandeered. It may not do a great deal of damage unless you've got it armed and up in an aeroplane to fire, but the, the event itself would cause a catastrophe in Europe. Everybody would go on high alert. It seems, though, that this means catastrophe already for Turkey. Uh, people aren't getting paid for their work. We know that 15,000 education ministry staff have been sacked. 21,000 teachers have had their licences withdrawn. Uh, university deans have been told to quit. The police, 8,000 of them removed from office. The finance ministry hang staff on, hang on, hang have on, hang also... Erdogan uh, would say, about time to. You know, forget looking at it as a Western European... Also, forget looking at it as an alliance. The um, uh, Turks are starting to go against the idea of alliances, not NATO, not the EU or whatever, but the whole idea of belonging to things. It's also happening within Turkey as well. And I think that what we're going to see over the next three or four months, we're going to think, see things that are sort of unpalatable and therefore will put Turkey even further away from becoming a member of the e EU. But in some ways, what Erdogan uh, might be saying to himself, well, we're out of that one so far. And it's not a bad idea it happened because I can now get amongst them and sort them out. Christopher Lee for the moment. Thanks very much indeed. Still to come, why the Royal Navy's having to wait for its new Type 26 global combat ships. And Theresa May's unveiled her new cabinet. So who's made the cut at the Ministry of Defence? You're listening to SITREP with me, Paula Middlehurst. Now, following the killing of 84 people in Nice last week, France has announced it's extended its state of national emergency for a further six months. The deaths occurred when an alleged terrorist drove a lorry into crowds during Bastille Day celebrations last Thursday. Well, Professor Anthony Gleese is director of the University of Buckingham Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies, and he joins us now. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Let's talk about France then. France yet again, some are saying, are attacks on France quite separate from the usual run of ISIS targets? Well, I, I think they're different, but I don't think they're separate. I think what we're seeing in France is a situation where the so-called Islamic State sends blood, uh, sends a, a, a nation that cannot deliver the security that is required and therefore is piling the pressure on I mean, we've had seven attacks since January 2015, three of them very serious attacks. 
And each time the response of the French state or the French president has been to call a state of emergency and to uh, effectively put troops and armed police on, on the streets. But it has not had the desired effect. I mean, France was in a state of emergency last Friday when the Nice attacks took place. And I think what France really needs to do now is to get its uh, the delivery of security up to the kind of standards that we have become used to in the United Kingdom. What about the French intelligence services delivering that security, though? As you intimate, uh, perhaps decades behind in terms of the evolution of security as we've seen it um, from the UK's experience with uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland. But what can the French intelligence services do to prevent this from happening? Well, I think there are two big problems that the French security community faces. The first of them is that the French people themselves appear to put the value on their personal privacy way above their value on national security. If you do ask British people, you know, what's more important to you, your personal uh, liberty and privacy or the security of the United Kingdom? About 60% of people consistently say national security is more important than privacy. If you do ask this question to people of France, they probably put exactly the other way around, that their privacy is more important than their security. That means that the French authorities have to be very, very wary in doing the sort of intrusive interception uh, that we in Britain will accept in the fight against so-called Islamic State terrorists. The other problem is that the French intelligence community, the various agencies, seem to uh, compete against each other rather than cooperate. At any rate, that was the view of a parliamentary committee of inquiry called to investigate the Bataclan massacre last November. And they said France needs a new unified intelligence-led counter-terrorist police force, much as we have in the United Kingdom. And a lot of the intelligence community in France now coming under attack, not just from their people. We saw the boos and uh, the shouts of murderer, murderer, as the uh, French uh, prime minister uh, attended a, a memorial service in Nice after the 14th of July. Many people saying that there's been a massive failure on the part of the authorities to protect the French people. And if it is down to that cultural difference that you speak of, uh, that uh, liberté is more important than sécurité, as they say, what can the French authorities do to tackle that head-on? Well, I think the first thing that they can do is have a single unified intelligence-led counter-terrorist police force. And I, I think the, the idea of states of emergency, and President Hollande last week extended it again uh, for three weeks, I, that's simply wrong. I think they need to uh, also look very carefully at the, 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 their individual assessment of situations that could cause um, or lead to terrorist attacks. I mean, what was notable in the case of Nice was that this murderous individual could drive his lorry for 20 minutes at, at 10 o'clock in the evening along the Promenade des Anglais in Nice, 
where people were going to celebrate the fireworks of Bastille Day, one of the most important celebrations in the French calendar, without there being a single roadblock, without there being a single sniper or police marksman to challenge him. And that suggests that the French continue to take security uh, in a sense for granted. The other thing that is really uh, vital, I think, is that the government of France realizes the great danger of not doing some fairly tough things. For example, knowing who is both a Muslim origin or faith and could be a security risk. The Nice attacker had a conviction for the illegal possession of firearms. He was a violent man, yet he appears to have been completely below the radar of the French authorities. It's this kind of tightening up that is key because if it doesn't happen, I think the French people will begin, I hope they don't, but will begin to think about taking the law into their Mm. own hands. And that has to be avoided. The delivery of security is a prime duty of the state. If the state does not do it properly, people will turn against the state. Professor Anthony Glees from the University of Buckingham, thanks for joining us. Now, MPs have been trying to get to the bottom of the production delays facing the Type 26 global combat ships. The Commons Defence Committee wants to know if they'll affect both the Royal Navy's capability as well as the life of the existing Type 23 frigate. Well, the Ministry of Defence has denied that a shortage of money is behind the delay. And just three days into her new job, Procurement Minister Harriet Baldwin faced questions from MPs and she denied that suppliers involved in the £8 billion programme had been told to mothball their contributions for up to three years. I don't recognise the phrase that you've used, Mr Chairman, in terms of uh, mothballing, and I don't think anyone uh, on the panel would uh, either. Uh, And uh, that Tony is completely correct that obviously no cut steel date has ever been committed to, no uh, fixed date for the start of manufacture has been committed to and it will not be committed to until it goes through that main gate. Well, Chairman of the Committee, Julian Lewis, asked Tony Douglas, the Chief Executive of Defence Equipment and Support at the MOD, whether the delays were meant to cut costs. It's hardly best value for money, is it, to penny-pinch now and then end up spending something like uh, 50 or 60% more on the project later, so as happened I, with the aircraft could, carriers. If I could perhaps complete sure. the, the point I was going to try and build towards, is we are now in the heart of a negotiation. Mm -hmm. You quite rightly referred to history and best practice. I think it would tell us all that committing programmes that have got a low level of design fixity is normally the enemy of the good. I think everybody would concur that that is the case. Type 26, from a design maturity point of view, is more advanced than any of the previous classes. That's good news. It's 60% complete. By definition, I put it to most people in this room, if you were building an extension on the back of your house, you wouldn't get it priced if it was only 60% designed. So you're saying... To maximise the position on behalf of the end user and the person who's paying for it. 
Well, the MOD, meanwhile, is to pick up the full bill for refitting the Type 45 destroyers, which broke down in the Persian Gulf because they weren't designed for warmer waters. The first Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones was asked about those problems. The WR-21 gas turbines were designed in extreme hot weather conditions to what we call gracefully degrade in their performance uh, until you get to the point where it goes beyond the temperature at which they would operate. <laughs> so you could bring systems offline uh, and gradually adjust the way the ship is operating. We found that the, the resilience of the diesel generators and the WR21 in the ship at the moment wasn't degrading gracefully, it was degrading catastrophically, so that's what we've had to address. But um, the, the ships have been able to operate pretty much right up to the, the temperatures at which they were designed to operate. Now, in the, in the high summer, in the high sea and air temperatures of the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, they occasionally breach the operating limits, um, and we've had to adjust for that. But to, to design a ship that can operate in all conditions, at all times of the year, in all places, will be an extremely um, poor value-for-money thing to do, and therefore we, we, we have accepted um, that we won't be able to operate all of the time in, in every place, every day of the year. Um, but we're confident that the new diesel generators will give resilience into these ships that will mean they can go forward and operate comfortably and effectively from here on in. So, Christopher Lee, what did you make about what they were saying there? Brilliant, didn't it? Eh? <laughs> I like the laughing the f- in the background. That was the, funny. The, I mean, who got the first sea lord says, well, you know, uh, we got the WR21, the gas turbines. Very good. Then we got the diesel generators. I mean, you can't expect them to operate in all conditions. Yes, you can, actually. I mean, if you, could you imagine going to war and saying, well, I'm sorry, we can't turn up tomorrow because the temperature's too bad. It sounds like the British Railways, doesn't it? Now, we have a problem, and that is in... I've, I've never known a single ship class except the Type 21, the Amazon class, that went to sea more or less as it said it would and did what it said it did. But even then, I suppose, six years in, they started to crack. You know, cracks came through. Um, the other thing which I think is partic- more important, and that is the future of the Type 26... Type 26 is supposed to be... uh, We're supposed to be further on than we are now, the global combat ships. They're supposed to be the best of what will happen in that class of vessels. And at the moment, we're not quite sure when we get them all in. Is it money? Uh, Yes, it is partly money, although the MOD uh, decide that it isn't. Is it a question of the straightforward construction process and design process? Yes, it is. This happens every time. And what you can say in the the quieter time is that somebody comes along and says, I'll build it for you for sort of 26 millions, goes back six weeks later and says, by the way, it's 30. Let's move on to the other problems the Ministry of Defence is dealing with at the moment. Of course, the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, unveiling her new Cabinet this week. And tell us about the junior ministers then at the MOD, Chris. Well, I tell you, if in that thing you, you, you heard uh, right at the beginning, um, there's a whole new team, really three in particular. One is Harriet Baldwin, or, um, and Harriet Baldwin was taken on the committee and said, look, basically... She was really in command with her brief. Now, she is, her background is in finance. Uh, she is not sort of, you know, a, a do everything sort of backbench MP. She's got a good career in finance, especially pension studies, which are the most complex form of, of national uh, defence. She is extraordinarily good. How, Earl Howe, is the spokesman in the House of Lords? It will, he, he will have to bring through the Armed Forces uh, Bill through the House of Lords when it comes up uh, uh, next year. 
All right, well, we'll leave it there for now, and we'll see what happens at the Ministry of Defence as far as those junior ministers are concerned. Meanwhile, the head of the army says the door is open to anyone who wants to join the service, just as long as they can meet the required standard. In a speech at Leicester University, the chief of the general staff, General Nick Carter, said the complexity of the new information era requires talent and skills drawn from across all faiths and communities. He's been speaking to our reporter, Charlotte Banks. Well, I think first and foremost, what I'm doing here in Leicester today is about trying to explain to people what the army does, because I think we have this extraordinary paradox where we've never been more popular, but equally I think we've never been less well understood. So the first and most important thing I'm doing is to explain what we do. And that, I think, will then set up the big deduction, which is in order to deal with what we do, we need talent from a much broader Kirk than we once might have drawn it from. Yes, I think at the moment the figures are about 10% of the British Army is drawn from ethnic minorities and the Foreign Commonwealth. And only about 440 are from the Muslim community. So what's the army doing wrong or what can it do better to attract more people? I don't think it's done anything wrong. I think there's this realisation now that we just need to do better. And doing better means we've got to identify with all communities in this country. And that is because we want to draw talent from as broad a recruiting base as possible. But also because we want to remain relevant to all of British society. Why are you so keen to attract these communities into the army? What value do they bring? Well, I think first and foremost, um, many of them have great talent, whether it comes to STEM skills, that's science, technology, engineering or mechanics. But also, of course, they bring with them a different approach to life often and connections to the sorts of places that we might be employed overseas in the future. And given that we now live in a networked world where it's hard to distinguish between foreign and domestic policy, there's a huge advantage to the British Army drawing itself from those sorts of connections. And the British Army's obviously been involved for more than a decade in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's well known that organisations like Islamic State use imagery from those conflicts as propaganda. How damaging do you think the last decade or so has been to the Army's reputation amongst those communities? Well, I think, again, it comes back to my point about explaining what the Army does. Because if you look, for example, at Afghanistan, where I've spent three years of my life, what you see is that, is that the contribution to the, that the British Army made to that country has led to significant progress and to significant development. Um, and I think that people are in a better place than they were when I first went there in 2002. I think the second big point to make is that we share very similar values and standards to the communities throughout this country, but particularly the Muslim community. And I think that if we focus on those shared values and standards, we'll all see that actually we're very similar in our outlook and our approach. In a, on a very practical level, though, what's the British Army doing to try and overcome that reputation in the UK? Well, I think it comes down to the sort of talk I'm giving today. At every level, we need to be engaging and explaining. Um, we've never been smaller, so it's a challenge. Uh, the reserve is very helpful. We've put a lot of extra effort into that because they are much more connected into society perhaps than the regular component of the army. Um, and then it's about identifying where you can have a best impact. We can't be everywhere all the time. Um, so cities like Leicester, uh, Birmingham to a degree, but also the northwest are areas where we've got an opportunity to identify with a broader church than perhaps before. And now the government's target is, I think, about they want... Uh, incoming recruits from ethnic minorities to reach about 10% by 2020. How confident are you that the British Army will reach that target? Um, that's a very challenging target because, of course, what we're trying to do here is to overcome a generation's worth of a lack of understanding 
and this process of engagement um, and achieving that depth of understanding will take time. But I'm not um, dissuaded by that. Um, I'm absolutely determined to try and do as well as I possibly can. Um, and my expectation is we will get as close as we possibly can to that target. Generals Nick Carter there speaking to Charlotte Banks. And before we go, Christopher, do tell us about HMS Ambush uh, knocking into this, what is it called, a glancing collision off the coast of Gibraltar? Uh, the sail, the sail of uh, the Ambush is uh, a bit duffed up on the starboard a top scrape. side. Yes. Um, isn't, what, this, is, this, is a, this is a boat... Um, this is a boat on exercise, seven and a half thousand tons of fur on exercise at periscope depth in one of the most dangerous waters and difficult waters to navigate in 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 the whole of the Mediterranean. Happened to me, not in one of those, but at surface ships. So I'm, I'm, I, I speak with some passion. Um, so you look around and you say, "Nicole, what happened?" Well, at first look at the Met. What was the weather like? Uh, weather doesn't sound very important if you happen to be submerged, but it does have an effect on the submarine. Also, you stick up a periscope level and you have a look through the periscope, and you've only got to have laps of water, and laps of water makes the monitoring very difficult. But it is the sort of job, if you're not careful, it's the end or a different career in, in future. Christopher Lee for the moment. Thanks very much indeed. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to all our guests who've contributed to today's programme. Tell us what you think as well, please. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We're back next week, but for now, from me, Paula Middlehurst, goodbye to you and thanks for listening. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Police investigate attempted...